In the wee hours of Sunday morning, four astronauts splashed down to Earth in the Gulf of Mexico near Panama City, Florida. And SpaceX Mission Control said, we welcome you back to planet Earth. Thanks for flying SpaceX. For those of you enrolled in our frequent flyer program, you've earned 68 million miles on this voyage. And uh, the astronauts, the NASA astronauts in the commanding mission uh, capsule said, resilience is back on planet Earth. We'll take those miles. Are they transferable? A little bit of fun. Uh, as they return back to planet Earth. Here to talk about what's going on in the world of space exploration and how big of a deal this is, Paul Delaney, our resident 640 Toronto expert in astronomy and space exploration, and of course, professor at York University. Paul, welcome. Good morning, Kelly. Gotta love the banter, don't you? Oh, uh, you know what? It, it keeps things light. It keeps things fun. And I gotta say, if I was plummeting back to Earth, uh, splashdown into the ocean or not, it would be uh, a nerve-wracking event. Can you tell us a little bit about why this is a big deal? 18,000 kilometers an hour and heating up the capsule to 3,000 degrees. Yeah, it, it's challenging. There's no question in the world. But they did it picture perfect. I mean, this marks the culmination of SpaceX and NASA's first full mission. I know they did the demo flight this time last year, but this was four people up to the International Space Station, a full five and a half month work shift, and then back down for splashdown. The whole package from start to finish looks as if it was near picture perfect. And that is such good news as far as NASA is concerned. It's good news as far as space tourism is concerned. Obviously, SpaceX loves it. So getting to a planet or to an international space station is one thing, but getting back to Earth is another. What could have gone wrong? <laughs> oh, I, I guess the short answer is whenever you're taking a flight, takeoffs and landings are always the most nerve-wracking as far as the passengers are concerned because that's where you're changing speed, where you're changing energy levels so dramatically, and it's got to be done perfectly. No difference as far as space flight is concerned. The launch is obviously, you know, riding a controlled bomb of explosion. Uh, and then coming back to Earth, you know, as I said, 18,000 kilometers an hour, you've got to hit that atmospheric angle, the window exactly. Otherwise, you don't end up where the recovery ships are, the heat, everything has got to go perfectly. And so there's, there's a multitude of things that have got to work very well, uh, all the way from firing your retro thrusters to slow down your orbit, uh, orbital speed so that you literally fall out of orbit, that you fall into the atmosphere, as I said, at the right angle. Uh, and then the parachutes have got to deploy. The, the, the ships have got to be in position. I mean, there's a multitude of things that have got to go right. And they did. And, and that's what we expect. I mean, if you look back over both NASA and now SpaceX's histories, the vast majority of times they do it well and they do it right. And when you've got people on board, there is little margin for error. So speaking of history, this is the first time since 1968 that a capsule splashdown is it in the the waters around the states or with uh, four American astronauts? So Apollo 8 uh, was the uh, Christmas of 1968 flight. The three people around the moon, Borman, Lovell and Anders, and they came back to a nighttime splashdown in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, generally speaking, you know, you want to launch and land in daylight because, you know, you've got hundreds of cameras uh, that are monitoring every aspect of the launch and the landing. Rarely do we do it at night, but of course, they can be quite spectacular for the launches at night. Uh, this, as you've said, is only the second time in, what, 53 years or something uh, where we've come down at night. 
Uh, it's a little unusual, but the weather dictated it. Uh, you wanted to bring the vehicle down in very calm seas. Uh, the Gulf of Mexico is their primary landing site because, of course, it's proximity to Florida. They didn't have a whole lot of choice. They've been delayed three or four days already. They did not want to keep the astronauts up in that sort of packed space station arrangement, 11 of them, any longer than they needed to. So they opted for the nighttime splashdown. But you know, it was automated. Uh, everybody knew where things were in this day and age with radar and infrared tracking. It really wasn't hard to watch it in that regard. So I also read another headline that caught my eye, and I thought you maybe could speak to this. NASA's solar probe has become the fastest object ever built as it touches the sun. It's the Parker solar probe. What are we doing? Just uh, sending things to the sun to see how fast they can go as they uh, burn up? <laughs> Uh, no, <laughs> but yeah, half a million kilometers an hour. That's how fast the Parker probe was traveling as it uh, passed through the outer layers of the sun, the corona uh, at what we call perihelion. Uh, it was doing that at a distance of less than 11 million kilometers from the solar surface. The aim of the exercise here, Kelly, is for us to literally be inside the envelope of the sun's outer atmosphere so that we can monitor things like the solar wind, the magnetic fields, in situ, we are, we've been monitoring the sun from afar for a long time now. And, uh, you know, it's time to get the details. The devil is in the details. And to get those details of how the sun is operating in these extreme environments, we've got to send a probe. And that's what the Parker probe is all about. And it's, it passes ever closer to the sun twice a year. It, it, it's using Venus in a really interesting way. Uh, it's basically an anchor point. And as the probe comes away from the sun, it loops around Venus, redirects itself with a gravity assist and zooms back into the corona sort of about you know three months later uh, at a closer distance and at a faster speed. And it's going to continue to do that until 2025 inching, inching, oh, that's probably not the right term, but getting closer towards the sun's surface every time. Its minimum distance is going to end up being less than 4 million kilometers from the solar surface. So a lot of insight, a lot of scientific insight available to us when we are that deep into the sun's atmosphere. And what can that inform down here, here on Earth? So this well, this, uh, you know, the sun is this powerhouse that informs every aspect of life on this planet. As you are probably aware, periodically we have what we call coronal mass ejections, where the sun belches a significant quantity of charged particles out towards the Earth. This is really dangerous for our uh, the infrastructure that is in Earth orbit. You know, GPS satellites, weather satellites, human satellites. Yeah, every aspect of modern life has some connectivity to the the, the structure of satellites in Earth orbit. Coronal mass ejections can be significantly disruptive to that. Remember back in 1989, the entire Quebec hydrogrid went out because of a coronal mass ejection. Back in 1859, the Carrington event, we actually transmitted energy along telegraph wires, which basically decimated the telegraph system and actually caught fire some of the telegraph stations on that system. We live in a day and age where we need to understand when a coronal mass ejection is going to occur and to perhaps you know, harden all of our computer systems to those sorts of dangerous events. The Parker probe is giving us insights into the way these sorts of events and other things on the sun are actually operating. And so it eventually protects yours and I's bottom line, our infrastructure that is underpinning society. Interesting. You say that this is going to keep getting closer and closer, this probe, to the surface of the sun. Is it eventually a suicide mission for the probe? 
That is not what has been told to us. The prime mission was seven years, getting us out to 2025 with two passes ever closer to the sun each year. And so we started out sort of like, you know, about 25 million kilometers from the sun, and we've been steadily working our way in. Uh, of course, you know, want, not wanting to subject the probe to any greater a danger than we need to, picking up information as we go. Will they continue to press that uh, distance uh, after 2025? My bet is they'll probably not press it any closer. I think they will opt rather to keep uh, collecting data every six months with a relatively close pass, say, you know, in the vicinity of five to 10 million kilometers. I think once they hit that four million kilometers, my bet is if the probe is still healthy and happy, they'll back it out a little bit just to increase its lifespan. But I don't know. <laughs> At the moment, it's not uh, it's not uh, planned to go beyond 2025. So, Paul, one last question for you, because we started off with a story about SpaceX and uh, Elon Musk, we know is the mastermind behind SpaceX. Are you going to watch him host on SNL this weekend? Is that something that you and your uh, astronomy uh, buddies at York University are looking forward to tuning into? Am I allowed to say I'm not a big fan of him sure. hosting things? Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of time for SpaceX and I have a lot of time for Elon. But, you know, his hosting capabilities, uh, you know, I think I'm going to have other plans for Saturday night and I'll wait for the rerun. <laughs> All right. Well, it is. He, he wasn't sure if it was live either. So uh, reruns are OK. Paul, thanks so much. Yeah, I really appreciate I appreciate your time.